scripture reading this morning is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Sorry, messed up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for um, our your word, and uh, that our time in it is good and encouraging and edifying. Uh, be with us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry about that. I'm not used to being the one who speaks this at this time, so... Uh, I'm trying to be a, a good congregant and leave my uh, <clears throat> leave my uh, mic uh, muted, uh, so we can make snarky comments about the preacher. Um, so, which is what now all you can do. So, uh, I'd like us to look this morning at Psalm 32. Uh, many occasional preachers go to the Psalms for one-off sermons uh, as an easy way to find inspiration and material without being in a series. Uh, while it would be very long, a series in Psalms is certainly not without merit. Uh, if we did that in Sunday school, I probably wouldn't have to come up with a new idea for probably seven years. So there is that to consider. <clears throat> the heading of this Psalm is a Maskeel of David. Uh, we know who David is, but we really don't know what a Maskeel um, is. It's possibly either a musical term or a liturgical one. And it describes something unknown to us, or may mean that this is an instructional poem. Uh, it's used 13 times in the psalm, so this is not a unique uh, description. Uh, but that doesn't matter, because it doesn't change the wisdom and the godly counsel and the encouragement that we get from this psalm. Um, we start in verse 1, uh, blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven, uh, whose sin is covered. Uh, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. And this psalm begins, uh, and it's reminiscent of Psalm 1. Uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Uh, so we're talking about uh, the one who is forgiven, the one whose sin is covered, uh, the one who uh, God does not count iniquity. Uh, we're talking about the one who has entered into confession before God. 
it starts with the word bless and we use the bless so often we may have diluted it. We use it when someone sneezes, when we uh, want to wish them well on their birthday, on Facebook. We even use it as a subtle jab uh, to, uh, uh, as kind of a snarky response. And all those use the word blessed, but blessedness is not used here for the man who's been a diligent law keeper. And I think that's important that we're not talking about the perfect man we're talking about the sinner. So looking at the blessing, um, if, if this was the, 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 the diligent law keeper, this blessing would never be ours. But this blessedness comes to the lawbreaker, but to the forgiven lawbreaker. In Romans 4, Paul uses verse 1 and 2 here to teach about justification by faith, not works. Um, when you read these two verses, it's apparent that works is the last thing we should be asking God to justify us on. The last thing I want him to do is look at my works and, and say that on those works, I'm worthy of, of anything. Uh, because what works are mentioned here? Transgression, sin, and iniquity. Uh, these are our actions and these are our actions that require our repentance. Uh, it's kind of fun. The word blessed here is in the plural or blessedness is, is, is. It's a multiple of blessing. And did you ever notice God never describes his blessings on us as measured or restrained? In Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are blessed upon blessed upon blessed, and David recognized that in this psalm. Uh, it goes on, it says, whose sin is covered. Our sin is covered. Our offensiveness is clothed in forgiveness. And we're going to talk about covered a little bit later. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. We say it's unimaginable to deceive God, but we try to do it anyway. We try to hide our sin or ignore it in the hopes that God won't notice it. Somehow we think if we deny we're sinning that the statute of limitations kicks in at some point and God moves on. That's our deceit, our deceiving ourselves, not God that somehow our sin becomes less over time. And it does not, it remains, and it remains in full force and full strength. Um, and we are deceiving ourselves if we think anything other. It goes on to verses uh, three and four. Um, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For the day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. This is when I keep silent. Uh, for when I kept silent. In verses 1 and 2, David expresses the relief, the joy, and the blessedness of his transgressions forgiven, his sin covered, and his iniquity not counted against him. 
But here he reveals the pain that comes when he fails to confess his sin. So we're seeing both sides of this, that, that there, is, there is blessedness and relief and joy in confessing our sin. But when we don't confess our sin, there's this oppressiveness that David talks about. Do we forget about our sin? Do we try to ignore our sin? Do we hoping it disappears? Do we deceive ourselves about sin, like I said in the last uh, verse? Sometimes we think, after all, we're forgiven. We're followers of Christ. He did all the work of forgiving our sins, so we're good, right? Why do I need to confess something that's already forgiven? And David shows us here the, the oppression that comes with that. So it's always um, an interesting blessing to say that you are being convicted of your sin by the Holy Spirit. A, it doesn't feel good at all. Like David says, your bones are wasting away. You're groaning. Uh, God's hand is heavy on you. Your strength is dried up. But the rejoicing is, is God is convicting you of your sin because he wants you to confess and return to a right relationship with him. There's this wonderful assurance that if you feel the conviction of sin, you belong to Christ and he cares for you and he's looking out for your best interest. Um, David relates that his unconfessed sin was like a wasting disease to his very bones. The very... He's saying that the very structure of a man is being broken down by his sin, and he's groaning under the heavy hand of God. Uh, you may have noticed that we have some heat here in the desert. Like David says here, it will dry up everything. Uh, it dries up everything like a drought. It's just There's nothing here. Every summer seems to be the hottest one I can remember. I don't know if I'm getting older or what, but uh, everybody goes, oh, man, this is the hottest summer I can ever remember. But uh, I think we can all agree it drains away your energy when it's that oppressively hot. It takes all the strength out of us. And David says God's hand of convictions like that. When we keep silent and we don't confess our sin, it dries us out and constantly oppresses us. It's our sin that's drying us out. It's our sin that's dragging us down. It's God who's pointing out to us what's our problem. He's showing us what our condition is and showing us, encouraging us towards the remedy. David ends with Salah. Again, it's a term we don't have a good understanding as to its exact meaning. Um, it possibly can be calling for a pause a rest or an attenuation as a musical um, um, uh, descriptor. But one thing is clear here is that it signals a change. We're going to move from David's suffering under unconfessed sin to something better. And that something better is a solution. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. Um, he uses the same words, sin, iniquity, transgression. Um, 
and uh, uh, that's important that, that he's carrying that same idea across. We talk about confession being good for the soul. And by David's account here, it's good for your health as well. Unconfessed sin is a weight on us. It's a burden that suffocates us. As David just said, it's, it's wasting away your very bones. So uh, sin, uh, what is sin? Sin is an offense, and it's an offense against God. We say, um, if God says, this is right and this is wrong, and we do the wrong thing, that is sin. It's an offense against God. And iniquity, though, is a condition of guilt. And that's an important distinction. A transgression uh, is, a, is a rebellion, is a, a trespass. And I think all of them put together shows the nature of unconfessed sin. It's an offense. It's a condition of guilt. And it's a rebellion against God. Um, now he says, um, I did not cover my iniquity. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, we talked about cover, and when it's used in verse 1, there's a sense of being made decent, of being made clothed. Uh, like Shem and Japheth, when they covered their father's nakedness, they walked backwards carrying a, a cloak and dropped it on their father. So they didn't see him, but they covered him to, to make him decent. But here in verse 5, cover means to hide. David shows us that confession requires us to not hide our sin from God. And we, we in, in an intellectual sense, we, we think of that as an absurdity to hide your sin from God. But again, we try all the time to do it. We must confess the guilt as well as the fact of our sin. To simply acknowledge that we did something is like the sorry if you may have been offended apology. We, we, we just admit we, we might have done something wrong, but we don't admit the guilt. When we admit to the act but have no remorse of the guilt, we aren't really confessing. Can, can you see that distinction? I hope you can. A confession humbles us. A confession softens our heart to God and his will. A confession teaches us that God is the one who is offended. And that is our rebellion, it's our trespass, is we have offended God and we've offended his justice. And his justice is supreme. Um, the, the situational ethic of sorry if you may have been offended uh, really turns away from the truth that God's justice is the supreme standard of what is sin and what is righteous. And we need to accept that in our confession. We need to acknowledge that in our confession. Psalm, uh, or I'm sorry, excuse me, Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. In 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10, uh, John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, 
and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And what a powerful statement John makes there. Uh, when we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. That's, that's big. That's scary big. And probably worst of all, that his word is not in us. We, we are not belonging to, to God, to Christ, if we say we have not sinned. Here in Psalms, we come to another Salah at the end of verse 5. And again, that tells us that it changes here. David tells us that he has confessed. Then he moves on to show wider wisdom for all of us. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Um, David frequently talks about being in some sort of catastrophe and God being his refuge. And he does that here too. David calls us to confess our sin and receive the grace that he has from the same act. He says, I've confessed my sin. If you do it, you receive that same grace. Verses 6 and 7 are addressed to God. Um, offer a prayer to you when you may be found. Um, they shall not reach you. You are a hiding place. So it's obvious he's talking to God. He's addressing God. Uh, Spurgeon says on this verse, when one man finds a golden nugget, others feel inclined to dig. We can see the solution to our sin problem. We can see the suffering our sin places on us. And here we're offering, we are offered a solution. David finds a nugget and he calls us all over and he says, dig right here because here is where the gold is. Here is where your forgiveness is. When troubles come like a flood because of unconfessed sin, the one who prays will be safe. The sin, the iniquity, the transgression will have been settled between you and God. When the wrath of judgment comes, it's too late for the unconfessed. They will be swept away by judgment. <clears throat> Let me say that again. When the wrath of judgment comes, it's too late for the unconfessed. Standing before the throne of judgment is not the moment that you can confess your sin. It's too late. And they're going to be swept away under that judgment. Verse 7 is a set of three short sentences that have a lot of meaning. And again, as we always say, there's no punctuation in, in the Hebrew, but th there's very definitely three uh, sentences here. He says, you're a hiding place for me. How amazing and comforting to speak so personally of God. And that's kind of one of the things that struck me this week in studying this. We have such a wonderful personal relationship with 
God. And God is the one who extended that to us. God's the one who wants that relationship with us. <clears throat> and to speak so personally of God just shows a wonderful relationship between David and God. And it's not exclusive because, you know, David uh, uh, was a favored man. This is a relationship that is available to every one of us. Notice that the same man who in verse 4 was oppressed by the presence of God finds his shelter in that very same God. See what honest confession and full forgiveness will do. When we confess our sins, we are given a full forgiveness. And God, who would be our judge, is now our refuge because he's faithful to forgive our sins. That's probably the biggest comfort you can think of ever. The second sentence is, you preserve me from trouble. The one who runs to God in confession will find that a habit of confessing keeps them away from sin. If, if confessing is strange to you, it's very hard to do. But when you're in that habit of confessing, it actually keeps us from sin. Uh, we just bought an old pickup truck. Some of you may have known that. I say I got it for Kathy for our anniversary. Um, it's 53 years old, and it came from Oregon. So it's got a bit of rust. Uh, we like to call it patina. Just saying. Uh, there's a lot of surface rust. And you can clean that off easily with a bit of sanding, um, clean it and spray it with some primer, and it keeps it from rusting in that spot anymore. It is preserved from trouble. But there's other places that the rust has eaten all the way through the metal. The corrosion has been ignored for far too long. And those spots will need to be cut out and replaced. If you're regularly coming to God with prayers of confession, it's like sandpaper on that surface rust. It's cleaned, it's covered, and you're preserved from trouble in that spot. But if you ignore your prayers of confession, it needs to be cut out. It needs, it needs to be drastic. Um, and when it's drastic, we avoid it. And we just go further and further into our unconfessed sin. And he says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. I just love that one. In old movies, the good guys end up with the bad guys in front of them and behind them. And somebody says, we're surrounded. But they're not surrounded. They're still up and down. That's open to them. When God surrounds you with something, it is a complete and total encapsulation. <clears throat> now, the ESV here says shouts of deliverance. King James Version says songs of deliverance. Uh, either way, this is a chorus of deliverance. To put it poorly, because that's what I'm good at, God surrounds us front and back, left and right, above and below, with escape. Think about that. We are surrounded by escape. God is singing this way out of sin. And it's any way that he leads us. If we stay, we're in sin. But we're surrounded by shouts of, go this way. Confess, 
and leave sin. Um, so we come to another Salah, and I'd say if you're reading Psalm 32 in your daily reading, uh, you're going to come across this sooner or later. Uh, I'd suggest you stop and meditate on what you just read here because it's powerful and it's, it's, it's the way to escape sin. It's the way to confess and reestablish our relationship with God. And we have a Selah here again, and it does indicate a change as we move to the next verses. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So God is speaking in the rest of this psalm. First, we had David talking about his experience, then David telling us how his experience can apply to us. And then, um, then we have we have God speaking in the rest of this psalm, uh, or we have David speaking to God, um, and then um, about God, and then here God uh, is our instructor, and He's teaching us how to live in a relationship with Him. Once our sin is confessed, we are forgiven, our iniquity is covered. Um, then, then we have the opportunity to live in a relationship with God. Sometimes we want to just jump to that end and say, what can I do to have a relationship with God? First, confess your sin. No, no, no. Let's just get to the part. No, you need to go through this process. You need to confess your sin to have a right relationship with God. If you think about it, what's your relationship with God with unconfessed sin? It's that one that David talks about with your bones wasting away and God's heavy hand on you. And that's not a relationship that people want or look for. So, so we move here and after confessed sin, we talk about a relationship. He says, I will instruct you and teach you. I will counsel you. Uh, so all you teachers who are on this shows, this shows us the three properties of a good teacher. First, show people the way of salvation. Show them the way that they need to go. Second, instruct them in the direction to grow. This is how you grow in that direction. And third, watch over them as they grow in that way. The importance of confession is that it brings us to the point that we become teachable and are able to grow. Um, we've all had that time where we've got really good information. We've got the best lesson plan ever devised, but no one listens. Class is all throwing spitwads or on their phones or anything else. It does not matter how good your information is. If you, if you don't have them in the place where they're teachable, if we are not in the place of being teachable, we're not able to grow because we're not able to receive that instruction. And as long as we fail to see the sin in our lives as a problem, we don't consider the relationship with God as something to strive for. 
if we don't think our sin is a big deal, if we don't think this is something that we need to be worried about or stressing about, uh, we don't consider the relationship with God as something to strive for because that relationship with God is one that's uncomfortable. It's a relationship that we don't really want to be in because God's saying, um, the sin thing, we need to deal with that first. And you go, um, okay, I'm going to move on. When we live in unconfessed sin, we fail to see the wisdom in following the way God says we should go. If God says, confess your sin, you go, I'd rather not. You don't want to go the way that God's wisdom is showing us to go in that direction. The Lord says he will counsel us with his eye on us. God always sees you. And that's a terrifying thought to the unrepentant sinner, but a comfort to the one who practices confession. The same, the same eye on us for the unrepentant sinner is horrible. But it's a great comfort to the one who practices confession. When we are in a, a relationship with God and we are confessing our sin, what a great comfort to know that God is always there. He's not only giving us counsel, he's giving us wisdom of living a holy life, but he's interested in how we progress. Like I said, that relationship with God. His counsel comes with care and concern. That relationship with God becomes rich and deep and wonderful and intimate when we confess our sin and follow God in his counsel and grow in the way that he's called us to grow. He talks about a horse or a mule, and a horse or a mule is stubborn. Uh, we call them stubborn because it can't understand logic, and it can't understand the implications of its actions. Um, a horse will run back into a burning barn because it doesn't comprehend that it will get burned there. It just sees the barn as a safe place, even though the barn's on fire and there's heat and smoke and um, it still will run back in there because it doesn't understand the implications of its actions. So these animals need to be led to where they need to go. Um, and uh, you watch old westerns, the cowboy rides into town, he pulls up on his horse and there's a, there's a, a post or a bar and, and he wraps the uh, reins around the post so the horse doesn't wander away. You have to secure the animal or it's just going to wander off. It's going to go look for, for grass to eat or, or water to drink or something like that. And even that, uh, you need to be careful on what they eat. Uh, otherwise, they'll, they'll overeat or they'll, they'll overwater themselves and, and be in discomfort. Um, so we need to secure those animals. And God's saying, don't be stubborn. <laughs> don't... Don't be, don't be the mule. Um, this is where preachers and commentators all got to tell their congregations to not be an ass. Uh, so, so we get away with that one in this one little verse. Um, but uh, yeah, don't be that one that God has to, to yank the reins to drag you around. And, uh, and your, life is, your life is richer. Come to the last two verses. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts 
in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. <clears throat> to paraphrase Fowler, who was a 17th century writer, there is never a joyful man alive but a believer. The man who takes pleasure in sin has the devil's joy. The one who rejoices in full, born, full barns or money has the fool's joy. And then he goes on to suggest reading Ecclesiastes 2. And then after that, he says, yeah, you should just probably read all of Ecclesiastes. The idea that joy comes from walking in a right relationship with God. And anything outside of that, anything different than that, is, is a false joy, is, is a false assurance. In verse 7, we're surrounded again, and this time with steadfast or enduring or unfailing love. Just think about that. So um, Kathy's got a big comforter. I bought it for a million years ago. Um, and uh, I mean, I just bought it. She wanted to comfort her to wrap herself up when she reads or watches TV. Uh, it's amazing. It, it is actually amazing. And uh, when our kids are here, they all kind of take it away. Uh, but it just, you wrap yourself in this comforter and you're completely just warm and safe and comforted. It's it is a true comforter. It's amazing. Now imagine surrounded like that with the love of God. You can, you can rest. You can relax because God's love is enduring. God's love is unfailing. God's love never goes away. It never diminishes. Um, I met a young man once. Some of you have heard this story. Because uh, I'm getting to that age where I tell stories over and over again. I met a young man, and he had become a believer that very week. Somebody had brought him to our Bible study. Uh, he was a rap singer. Uh, he was one who actually had a contract to be a rap artist. And he was wondering what he could do now that he was a believer. I said, you can still be a rap artist. And he says, no, he couldn't. He explained uh, that rap was about being angry. And then he said it was a glow on his face that was just absolute pure joy. I mean, it, it almost made me gasp the, the way his face lit up. And he says, he says, but I'm not angry anymore. And, and it was a wonderful moment. And then um, I was reading this week, Joseph Hayden, the hymn writer, when asked why his church music was so cheerful. Uh, he says, I cannot, he says, make it otherwise. I write according to the thoughts I feel. When I think upon God, my heart is so full of joy that the notes dance and leap, as it were, from my pen. And since God has given me a cheerful heart, it will be pardoned me that I serve him with a cheerful spirit. A classical composer in the 18th century and a 20th century rapper express the same joy in the Lord. And that's the joy we can have when we come to the Lord in confession. We can have that type of joy when we confess, when we repent. And it's not a painful act, but it's a cleansing one. So be glad 
rejoice and shout for love. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your incredible, unfailing love and your care and concern that you want us to confess our sin. You want us to come to you and, um, and repent of our sin, to repent of our guilt, to repent of our trespass and to accept your forgiveness. To accept your forgiveness for our eternal life, but also to, to accept your forgiveness for our relationship with you. It is something in the here and the now, the today, that we can experience the joy of a full, loving, and rich relationship with you. And thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.